The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Good afternoon, you are tuned to Resonance 104.4 FM. This is Isotopica and this is me, Simon Tishko. I've got a lovely show for you today, I hope, in all my humbleness. Um, one of those guests who, because today is a guest issue, one of those guests that you can just listen to for hours and hours and hours because she is incredibly knowledgeable, um, extremely charming, and just so loquacious that, well, just sit back and enjoy. Today has got a very nautical theme, and my guest is Jean Wainwright, who's popped on Twice Tropical once or twice in the past. Um, details of Jean will be in my next introduction as I actually start the interview. But she is probably familiar to a number of Resonance listeners. She's very much on the scene. Um, and Jean on the scene will be talking today about an exhibition she created curated and actually really large two location exhibition in Southampton which unfortunately finishes later this week but nevertheless this uh, discussion of the exhibition is really nice and worthwhile. The exhibition is called Ship to Shore and um, I think it makes for a rather nice sonic detail. I'll hope you confirm that by putting back your ears finding a comfortable position and enjoying today's ship to shore isotopica gene. <laughs> so bear in mind this is Resonance FM not here in the isotopica studio at Flight, the aeroplane department in West London, which is bizarrely still here. Um, I've got a delicious, lovely guest. Um, it's someone you've heard on Topica once or twice before, and it's an old friend, and I'm sure many of you in resonance land, as you're in very similar circles to me, will know Jean Wainwright, who is also an art historian, a curator, an academic, and many of you will actually know Jean's work, but may not realise that it's actually Jean that's been involved, because just being launched at the Tate Gallery, um, is audio arts, the cassette format, fabulous documentation of conversations with artists and sound works going way back. When did it? When did that start? Started in seventy three. Started nineteen seventy three. I mean, it's an incredibly important cultural document, especially for resonance us here, because this is what we do. And that was started with Bill Furlong, and Jean is was was one of the main contributors. And at the Tate at the moment, there's over one hundred and seventy of Jean's interviews and uh, meetings with various artists. I really recommend. Looking that up, I'll put some links on the website, theculture.net. You'll find the links there if you follow the appropriate arrows and things like that. Jean is also one of the world's most competent Warhol experts, I would like to say, after completing a PhD on Andy. And um, she's also done one of the most in-depth studies of Andy Warhol's sonic archives. And I think that's something that Jean has to bring to resonance one day. So, or hope for that. But anyway, today Jean's actually here in her, with her curation hat on. Um, we're going to be talking about a deeply personal show. It really relates Jean's history, blah blah, we're going to talk about that. It's on at Southampton Sea City Museum, the John Hansa Gallery, and it's only on till May the 4th, but as I know, most resonance listeners I think are very much like me and we barely get out of North, West or East London, mostly West London I'd like to think, so the chances of getting to Southampton were pretty slim but it's incredibly well documented and there'll be links to that too. But um, I helped Jean making editing some of the sound files and they were just so evocative and delicious that we had to bring it to an Isotopica special. So here we are today, Jean Rainway. Rain Wayne Wright. I will stop bumbling and let you speak some. Tell me about the show. The show. Well, Simon, I have to say you're quite right. It was a deeply personal show in a sense that it started because of my family background. And in a way, as a homage to my father, who's sadly no longer with us, but really loved the sea and 
would take us as children to on ships and having marvellous times. And I'd wanted to do the show for a long time, but I wanted to show a different aspect of it. I wanted to have everything from a fear of drowning and mm -hmm. works that actually, like Catherine Yass's works, which show lighthouses and swirling waters and extraordinary angles of the sea, to also people like Courbet and Tissot, who were showing a, a very different view of it. And then also people like Steffi Clens, who was doing this marvellous, did a, a series of absolutely wonderful photographs but what I wanted mainly was to just get people to look at all these different aspects and and feel some of that that wonderful passion that had really informed me when I was choosing the artists mm. and it was such a joy to do the show I made lots of lovely discoveries I loved the different mediums that the work was in as well so there's everything from a lovely little video by Dorothy Cross the storm in a teacup based on a film which you might remember because I know you're a film buster uh, called so, Man yeah. of Aaron of course Beautiful. and and it, it's fantastic it's it's a clip of that that's in her work and it's also based on her personal history of the sea Dorothy Cross's personal history of the sea. So what happens is, in a lot of these works, you start getting these wonderful links, whether it's Tracy Emin grieving for her father and lying on the ground in an olive grove in her place in France, where the olive trees have been cut back too vigorously. And she was desperate and thinking, if my father was here, he would know what to do. He wouldn't have pruned the trees like that, which segued into her making a work, um, which is in the show, in a beautiful neon piece. She lay down deep beneath the sea in this particular aquamarine green so there were lots of lovely different aspects of people's own relationship with the water the sea travel Langlands and Bell's work where they're looking at, at sea passages and names of ships and shipping lines and also very political work such as someone like actually Isaac Julian's very beautiful and magical magical piece Western Union small boats mm. So what you got was this, this wonderful, different clash of mediums, as well as um, deeply personal kind of engagements as well, which I really loved. Nice political, um, what's the political aspect? I mean, because England is a country, an island country, it's, it's been our, that's, that's our thing, isn't it? We've been in charge of the sea. We sailed out from our little island and conquered the world. Does that feed into the exhibition? It must do in some ways. Well, it does in, in some quite interesting ways, actually. For example, Langners and Bell's work that I just mentioned, Into the Blue, that has, it's a digital artwork on, on six screens, but what it has is the names of various seas, all the seas, actually. So yeah. they've got all the names of the seas, but then the names of ships. Now, ships are political things. They sail in waters, they have cargoes. That So the subtext of that work is, is very fascinating because it's about shipping routes, mm. it's about transport, flags it's about many... Flags of convenience many, as well, I guess. Flags, flags of, of convenience, convenience lots it's, it's... of things. And names, you know, they're names of ships which are of countries, you know, the SS Uganda. Mm. Uganda is a landlocked country, it doesn't have a sea. Um, so there's, there's kinds of the, all these little anachronisms which I really love in the work. Then Simon Patterson, and again, going back to for you, Simon, this idea of the television screen. Simon Patterson was fascinated as a child with Jacques Cousteau. Mm. and his, his way he would sit in the living room and, and be brought into the depths of the ocean. Wonderful. By <laughs> he mm -hmm. absolutely loved this, this programme. And um, he made a series of works called Cousteau in the Underworld, um, which are fabric charts, but the fabric charts were based on a 17th and 18th century sea charts that you would have on ships, which yeah. would tell you about waters in themselves those are fascinating because those charts are drawn up and things shift under the oceans as we know so he became fascinated by both these charts as real things real mm. charting of terrain mm -hmm. but on top of that he layered 
Jacques Cousteau's kind of life and Jacques Cousteau's where Jacques Cousteau dived and done various things. So we have this kind of fabricated world as well, literally. Which it um, very much was. I mean, yes, Christo, exactly, Christo, yeah. exactly. Cousteau will always be Steve Sissou for me now after, because that's that's that all-time favourite film. I am Steve Sissou in another life, I think. Well, indeed, they're, and they're, they're really beautiful works and you can you could in effect there's a boat hook and the idea was you would hook the chart off the wall but mm. there are other works as well a huge painting by Humphrey Ocean which I particularly love because it's about the banality of travel you know yeah. the going on the ferry and uh, picking up your duty free in your fags and your you know the polystyrene cup you get on ferries and all these things and, and something kind of, he was just engaging with the whole idea of what it means to go abroad and, and what it once meant. Mm. And he started the painting because he had seen all these wonderful photographs of men going off to war who were going off to fight and they were standing in the sunlight kind of thinking about going to France on an adventure. And this kind of made him start thinking about well, how would you make a painting that kind of relates to how much that shifted? Now going to France, it's you know, it's nothing. You go mm. on the ferry and you come back, and there's some people who go on the ferry they don't even get off. You know, they're just getting their duty free. And I, I think that kind of work put pitted against some of the other works, some of the the wonderful Courbet's seascapes, for example, where the you know the passion of capturing the waves just makes it rather interesting because there is something about the sea we know from recent history. It's fathomless, it's unknown, it's mm. mysterious, it's exciting, it's unpredictable. The first voyage in the Aruba, we left in February, I think, 1914. And it, it was a, in a snowstorm. When we got to Cherbourg, it was a snowstorm. And when we got to the Bay of Biscay, we was four days in the bay, going a mile an hour. The seas was about 40 feet high. We never saw a passenger. All the men was uh, standing by the lifeboats. And there was ropes all along the well deck, because the well decks then was not the same as these now. Then. There was well decks, there was ropes across here so we could walk across because the sea's coming over. And the lookout was up there for eight hours, couldn't get relieved. And I was on the bridge for five hours, five or six hours, and couldn't get relieved from another because us ordinary seamen we used to have a stand on the side of the bridge for our look and for a lookout. That was our duties, you know. And beside, uh, or we had cabin boys there beside, but ordinary seamen used to be on the lookout and do odd jobs around the deck. Well, for anyone who hasn't seen a switchboard. When you see a ship's switchboard, um, it's like you'd see perhaps in a GPO, which had four positions. Every uh, extension would come up with a light. And in port, you usually were quite busy when a ship first docked and all these lights would be flashing up and down. And you had a cord which you lifted up and pushed into the little hole where the light flashed. Quite often you'd go in the wrong hole quite easily, thinking it was the one below and it would be the one above. And it had the little switches that you pushed forward to speak and you'd plug the cord into where they wanted to go and pull the other one back. You could listen in <laughs> to some things, but it was very naughty to do that, you know, and a very bad thing. But all in all, I think it was a quite a relaxing job. At sea, it's all internal calls, passengers calling one another, offices calling one another, departments calling one another. They had to call, come through the switchboard. They couldn't dial anything themselves. And of course, you had these awful big headphones that you had to sit with on your head. When you weren't busy and the telephonist wasn't around, we used to sit with them hanging around our necks and just lift up one piece at a time. I think all in all, it was very interesting. You met very interesting people, you know, passengers and that, because we were on B deck, which we had passengers right opposite the door, so in the evenings you could see them all going out dressed.
and that, which was rather nice. And uh, four of us all together. And you would take shifts? We worked in shifts. We had a man that used to do a regular night duty. And then we worked from seven in the morning until 11. And then we changed shifts at 11, and it went 11 till three and then change again three till seven in the evening. When you were off duty, the cinema was open. So with the Chief Telefonist's permission, you could go and see a film, but it was according <laughs> to sort of how the day was going, whether you went or not. It really seems to me that you have exercised the art of the curator incredibly well on this because you've brought to this a passion. And do you think it's the overall subject matter or is that the way you approach most of your work? What do you think? Because I don't know too many of the other things you've cura curated. Well, other things I've curated, actually I curated a, a Warhol show about my search for Andy Warhol's voice. Mm. And that was completely personal for me after 10 years of trailing Warhol, in, in fact, through his sound pieces. So, um, yes, I would say often I have this this kind of great interest in not just the archival, the kind of background, but also talking to the artists and trying to find the links. And there's always something that absolutely mm -hmm. links the artists together, whether it's when they learn to swim or whether they're scared of drowning in water or dreams. You know, Catherine Yass spoke to me very eloquently, her piece, which is on a lighthouse actually it's about the sovereign lighthouse which is quite an extraordinary structure in itself and when i was talking to her i couldn't stop getting out of my head first of all that when i was at school i would hear the sound and see the light as well of the north fallen lighthouse so again often these things become quite personal in one's own history but also the way she deals with the whole idea of falling of, of going down she she explores under the lighthouse but also and very appropriate as we're under a plane <laughs> here literally bizarrely we are bizarrely also from a helicopter filming above the lighthouse then mm. inverting the film so that you get this extraordinary spiraling it's all about spiraling which actually for some people makes them almost feel they get the sensation of being very disorientated mm. and, I, and I, I loved that that you would have different experiences in the spaces. The two spaces the John Hansard's a very different experience from the Sea City Museum the John Hansard, the first work you see there is the Isaac Julian and it's very all encompassing this, the beautiful sound, the um, incredible uh, passion of Isaac's work actually and the choreography of Western Union small boats is very magical and then you move into Catherine's work which is different again as I've just described and then you have Thomas Joshua Cooper's work and Thomas Joshua Cooper is an amazing photographer very interesting in this world now because he doesn't work digitally he works with analog he goes to the ends of the earth literally where the earth meets the water mm -hmm. and he takes just one photograph black and white large format <laughs> camera Mm. and then he leaves. Sometimes the journey to get there, Simon, mm. might have taken him three months sure. to get to the place. Occasionally, in the past, he's been doing this project for a number of years, um, the film gets destroyed by the x-ray because some of the x-rays are quite primitive in some of the places mm -hmm. he's gone to. So, so he's had things through, but he won't go back. It, that is his thing. And that passion and devotion to the one shot in this age where photography is all about the multiple mm. is quite extraordinary. And then what's interesting about that work, he's in both shows. He's also in the Sea City Museum as well. There becomes these lovely little links. So Steffi Cleanse's work, for example, is about the multiple, but in a very different way. She's actually photographed the lens, the lighthouse lens, Frenzel lens. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful Absolutely glass, beautiful glass, what a good idea. Fantastic. And, but more than that, she's layered it with um, a, a score by Neil Codling of Suede, which is based on Schoenberg's 12 atonal compositions. Mm -hmm. And you get this beautiful sound which lures you into the piece. 
And so the whole idea of luring, but there's more than that because the lighthouse she used is near the Goodwin Sands. The Goodwin Sands shift. So the lighthouse itself lured people in. Sometimes they didn't survive because they were lured in by the light, but because the sands would occasionally shift, um, they would be lured onto the sand and wrecked. Wow. So again, there's all these, and, and they're opposite Catherine Yass's light boxes in Sea City. So you get these two kind of marriages of things talking to each other. And that's what I, I really wanted to do. Um, also, <laughs> Chris Burden's work in John Hansard, Ghost Ship. This is a self-navigating yacht and it's a, a, it's a failure. What happened was <laughs> Chris Burden wanted to make a, a, a vessel that would sail by itself, that would navigate it that would unfurl its, its um, sails and sail into the wind. It would all be marvellous if it sailed with the tall ships. However, he had not quite... He was told confidently, oh, the programme, it will work and it'll be course, great. Yeah. And it had to have a mothership just to see that everything was all right. And in his original drawing, the mothership is really not important. Lovely picture of the yacht. Unfortunately, what happened was the yacht couldn't do all the things. So the second drawing is of all the things it couldn't do. It couldn't because it's really complex to second guess the sea and every single little wind thing. And if you've ever watched people sailing and sailing, yeah, when well, you sail, you, you know you, what is. You feel it and you have to read it as you're going through all the time. It's constant. It's and the computer no. simply. Too logical. It was too logical. It couldn't do it. So they had to kind of have a mothership which um, could kind of do some of the computing for it and kind of say, yeah, the wind's about to change, you know, you've got to start doing this. So it was just really an interesting piece. Of course, people might know that Chris Burden was also the man who experimented greatly in the 70s in terms of he uh, shot, had himself shot. Had himself shot, as part, yeah. Yes, as part of, but so he's a very interesting man in terms of his experimental ideas and possibilities. And he doesn't mind things being heroic failures. Came on duty in the morning at seven o'clock. You probably have a list of your passengers who either needed early morning tea or coffee or their breakfast served in their cabin. So you had to get all your tables and trays all laid up ready to take that in. So after that was done and people began to leave their cabins, you and the steward would go in. You would see to the ladies' beds, make those, and you'd clean the wash basins and do all the glass stuff and things like that. And the steward would do the bathroom and the hoovering. You didn't go into a gentleman's cabin, the steward always did that. After that was done, because you had quite a number of cabins to look after, it was according to what section you was working on. Sometimes you might have had as many as 20 odd cabins. And you never seemed to stop, you were on the go the whole time. Lunchtime would come, some passengers would go down to lunch. Sometimes they wanted it in their cabin. And there was all the performance of laying up tables, going to the galley, carrying all the stuff off and taking it into them. Clearing up again. Some of the passengers had children. There was always the children's meals to be got and taken to the cabins. You were supposed to have two hours off in the afternoon. Port side would go first and then starboard side from two to four and from four to six. Ian, you had to cover the opposite side. The girl who was on the last watch, she'd have to get children's meals all ready to take in. Well, then, after that was done, People had to come back to their cabin and they'd get ready to go down to dinner. There again, some would go, some not, and you had to take dinner. 
to the cabins. Well, it was quite heavy work when it was all what they called silver service, which was, and it was very heavy and hard work to do. And then you tidied up the room, remade beds that needed it, turned them all down, put all the covers away, get that all ready for them. Sometimes they'd want cocktails, which the steward usually got. You'd be on and really never finished about 10 o'clock at night. And in the meantime, you were supposed to have your own meal. Well, often or not, you'd get it. You had to have it in your pantry. Well, it was nothing for a passenger to put their head right in the pantry door. Oh, sorry to trouble you, but do you mind getting so-and-so and so? You'd have to leave your meal and go and get it. But there was a something else, I think, that really engaged me, and that's the stories of people at sea. Um, and their voices and what I've always been fascinated is that people who've been to sea have brilliant stories the day there was a terrible storm you know the day there was a terrifying calm and we knew something was going to happen and some of the extraordinary measures that you have to do and when I was um, quite young I was on a ship with my father and he was sitting there and we were on a a cruise and he started to pour his glass of water onto the tablecloth and you could see people looking at him thinking hmm very strange but it was to stop things sliding because he realized there was going to be a storm and what I love is the descriptions of the voices of people who've been to sea mm. not only do you hear um, because they're historic recordings. Not only do you hear class, so there's a wonderful one of a telephonist where she's actually saying, we were on B-deck. Now the significance of B-deck is really important because B-deck, of course, is rather a posh deck, you see. Okay. So so what you have is she wanted you to know we were on B-deck. Yeah, That's where we were positioned. Of course, positioned. she served the B-people. Mm. I mean, the English, the, the, the old cruise ships, they were very much a segment of the class society, weren't they? They were a mi microcosm. Absolutely, and even again, listening to some of the voices, so you, you hear the captain who's got, you know, a completely different voice mm. from the steward, mm -hmm. or, but also lovely stories about people delivering newspapers. So in the show, I've got um, some archival, family archival material of um, the ship's times that would always be delivered to your cabin. So somebody would be working away, digesting the news, and you would be given the daily news. Oh, they printed something. Yes, they printed something on the ship. board. Oh, I was, yes, I was just going to ask, how did they get the newspapers? <laughs> they, well, they printed their own from yeah. from obviously messages yeah. and from digesting. You know, I mean, in different eras, it's yeah. been done differently. Mm. But they take the main stories, and you get that. You yeah. get your shipping times every cool. day. That. Is, is, is printed on board ship. I mean, cruise ships now, they're like giant shopping malls, aren't they? As far as I know, to an extent. <laughs> but you've probably got the luxury, the real luxury apartments. So once again, they that, still uh, must mirror. They're quite... Different shipping lines have uh, different types of ships. So mm. you've still got the the yacht-type ships, the okay. smaller ships. And okay. then you've got the giant enormous ships, which have everything from enormous theatres to climbing climbing walls to gardens to you name it you know you can you can do it on board a ship yes. literally and so you've got these these different things happening but what i loved about the recordings was they were so human you know the actual things that happen at sea things crashing about things mm. landing on your lap having to sleep with your life jacket under your bed you know some of the things because it's a threatening thing, this this great ocean around well, you. At any time, it can swallow at us up. At any time. As, as we see at the moment. And going, you had relatives on the Titanic, is that right? <laughs> I did. My um, great cousin was a, he was a, um, he was the surgeon on the Titanic. So I have a, a kind of interesting um, link even to that. But um, I think... Survivor? A survivor? No, he didn't survive. He went down with the ship. Wow. Um, and he was sent there for his health. He was sent there actually because he uh, wasn't very well and they said, what you need is a damn good sea voyage. There's a ship, there's a ship going, <laughs> the Titanic, yes. That, was, that wasn't um, that was <coughs> a, a great move, I can mm -hmm. tell you. Um, but there are other aspects of the show, I think, um, and it's to do with time. 
and sea time. And sea time is quite different. If you do a journey, we were talking earlier of a plane, mm. if you do a journey on a plane, it's kind of very quick. Sea time is much, much slower. Yeah. Um, Tassa Dedeen's done a lot of work on that, particularly um, in the show is the paint, sorry, is the photograph of the Tingmouth Electron, the boat, her boat, which, not her boat, Crowhurst boat, which ended up in Cayman Brach. Tell um, me the story, tell us the story quickly, because not right. everyone will know that. Okay, so the story is that um, Crowhurst uh, entered the round the world, single-handed round the world globe race. And what happened was that he realized pretty soon uh, when he got actually to the Roaring Forties, which is an area of sea, that he wasn't going to be able to complete the journey, really. So he started to fake his journey. What a hero. <laughs> and he faked the journey, faked his logbooks, but um, at sea you use something called a chromator. A chromator tells you, this was in, this was in 1963, so you, you, you actually use a chromator which tells you sea time. And what happened was his chronometer was slightly out, but in an ocean over a number of, of days, you literally lose where you are. You could be hundreds of miles out Golly. if your chronometer of is course. not working. So he was no longer able to know where he was, both actually and then in his faked logbooks. He didn't know, that's beautiful. So the interesting thing as well was that some of the other competitors had had their reading matter chosen by the Boy Scouts. His reading matter was Einstein's theory of relativity. <laughs> okay, now eventually he did go quite crazy with it all and he wrote in his logbooks, it's a mercy. And in fact, threw himself overboard we understand with his chronometer but what was interesting about it he left on board he was in Sargasso Sea which you probably heard of it's the sea which is totally usually very calm and he left on board a teacup with a paintbrush balanced on it to show that there wasn't some terrible event you know a great yeah. wave had taken him nice. he was literally in calm waters. People get stuck there, don't they? Anything yes, like they that. do. Yeah, so he, it was kind of quite an extraordinary um, idea. Anyway, eventually the boat was found with him not on it uh -huh. and taken to an island in the Caribbean and ended up in a smaller island in the Caribbean where Tassida, who's made quite a lot of work about Crowhurst, um, found it and, and talks about the extraordinary thing of finding something that you've tracked for so long took these incredible photographs of it um, and also there's a recording of her talking about Crowhurst and her engagement with the whole story and this man who who also realizes what he's done he left his logbooks for people to find I mean he didn't drown himself with his logbooks. Mm. But meanwhile, while he was sailing round, we've got the actual chart of the waters he sailed round in, and a wonderful instrument called a navigator, which he invented. He was also an inventor. I mean, yeah, really yeah, yeah. fascinating. And he came from this little tiny um, Cornish. He could so easily be the hero. He, he could have so easily been the hero. It just kind of went hero. a little bit wrong. It, it did go a little bit wrong, or oh. rather grandly wrong in, in some kind of amazing way. And I just think these, these kind of things, these, these kinds of different um, adventures at sea, if you like, and Richard Long with his walk. So I've got the wonderful mm. Richard Long um, works. I've got Ocean to River and Tide Walk. And Tide Walk's fascinating. It's 1992, where Richard walked from one area of England to another. So he walked from Western Supermare. And what happened was he walks where there's two different tide systems. So he's able to be at the high tide at one place and the low tide at the second place, but actually more than two tides have gone past. So it's very clever. It's again about this idea mm. of sea time. Um, and then ocean to river where he takes water from an ocean and pours it into a river. So there's this wonderful, and all you've got is the words, but in the words, you've got this whole journey Heavens, beautifully, beautifully described. Listen, I'm quite, I'm, I'm, I'm really taken with the passion you bring to this exhibition. 
Well, that's very kind of you. There are um, some other works I'd like to mention. Mark Power's Shipping Forecast. Now, have you listened to the Shipping Forecast? I love, I mean, yeah, it's a classic. I, I could just listen. Did you ever see a film going back? This is back to the cineast thing. It was called um, Ghost Dance. It was a well-known experimental filmmaker whose name I can't remember right now. It was made in the 1970s and it had Pascal Augier and Jacques Derrida did a cameo in it. And it was, I remember looking at it at much sort of earlier age before I'd fully engaged with my own practice and looking at this world that was very almost pretentious. And there was Robbie Coltrane in one of his very early moments. He used to sit on the roof of this squat playing his drum kits along to the weather forecast, the, 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 the shipping, shipping forecast. forecast. And it was just like, heaven, there's something in this, this kind of major... Anyway, I digress, but it's, it's No, but it's I beautiful. mean, it is beautiful. And there's the voice, passion. of course, the, yeah, the, the voice. voice was so lovely. And sailing. Listening is it, was and it called the, the song that the Radio 4 plays? Still play Radio oh, 3. yes. It's, it's 4, isn't it? Is it's it um, not sailing, I think oh, it is. Oh, no, I can't remember. I mean, the, the, the works that Mark I'm gonna, did... I'm going to stick that on behind us while okay, we're talking the about works, this. The works that my, uh, Mark Power did were in the 90s, and mm. what he did was... He went to every single site that's mentioned in the shipping forecast and took a photograph, a black and white photograph. Okay. And what he did was he printed um, on onto the glass the conditions that were given of the shipping forecast on the day he took the photograph. Mm -hmm. So therefore it might say Cromarty, mild, westerly, northeasterly, rising, gale force, whatever four. seven seven seven, <laughs> seven. <laughs> but just a, a, a lovely body of work actually mm. a really fascinating body of work because of their not only the way they're taken the images are lovely but also their whole engagement with what well, one you're just looking at an expanse of sea but actually it's a sea that's jolly really going to work up a very bad temper in not very long mm. a time and i just think you know that with something like susan hiller's rough seas and where she's taken originally um she's she collected for many many years images of victorian postcards of rough seas because the victorians used to love these postcards of um harbour walls being kind of battered by the waves i think we all like that. yes never mind the victorians so she collected them <laughs> uh -huh. and has made work um enlarging them and prints from them but also of course adding her own kind of unique style to them and they're also in the show and they're they they really are lovely and when you see them against something like Yinka Shinabares, we've got Yinka Shinabares um ship in a bottle Nelson's ship in a bottle but instead of a huge great magnificent work on Nelson's column it's a kind of smaller version of it so we look down on it rather than look up on uh -huh. it and again that whole idea of trade so you're looking at that and out of the corner of your eye you can see Langlands and Bell so there's a um, there's a synergy going on between what what Yinka's doing in his work of talking about the Dutch East Indies and trade and all these things in his work mm. and diaspora and travel and what mm. Langston Bell has done. So. And slavery. So you've I'll... got all these different kind of little agendas going mm. on. Zineb's work as well is about travel and uh, how, you know, um, you, you go from one place to another and you become sometimes displaced. So I think there's there's quite a lot that's almost like an undercurrent. There's mm. undercurrents in the work that kind of really can draw you out and um, <laughs> make you think about what it means in different ways to paint the sea, to think about the sea. Claire work, Claire Carr has, um, she's done a lovely, tiny little painting where she's taken the detail of a Claude Lorraine harbour, harbour scene at sunset, mm -hmm. painted in the 17th century. And what she has done is she's taken this tiny little piece as if seen through a telescope of a sail of a ship and a kind of um, uh, kind of some um, beautiful light emanating out of the painting and she's also painted with a tiny little hair one hair brush all the cracks and crackles of the work 
the work is called Surface. Okay. It's all about how you can tell time passing in the surface of a painting. It's like a circular route because she's also taking a huge amount of time to do her painting. So there's this lovely kind of thing of time mm. passing and engagement with, as Loren did, looking at the sea and doing this idealised version of this beautiful harbour, which doesn't, didn't exist. Nice. <laughs> Another fiction in there. Another I mean, fiction. It's, it's, it's your, your understanding, your grasp, and, and I keep going back to the passion there, but it's just an incredibly well curated show because so much thought has really put all of this together. I wonder how much of that actually communicates to the viewer, because uh, just from a professional point of view, how well do you think the exhibitions work for you? Because you've got a lot of ideas there, and obviously you want those ideas to translate and transmit. I think that certainly... Can you say that at this stage, or is that a cheeky question? <laughs> no, not at all. I think that a John Hansard, um, when you walk in there, you're very obviously immediately in a very intimate space. It's, you walk into Isaac's work, you're in a darkened space, you're there with the work being very moved by it. And gradually you move through this kind of curated space that John Hansard. Sea City is a very different space. It has enormously high ceilings. And one of the things I wanted to do with that show was that you got different vistas looking through it. So that so the, the show actually has quite a lot of room in it for to give you space to actually kind of have this feeling of the space that it's in. Now the actual architecture of the of the of the space itself the walls are at angles, so again, quite difficult to curate mm -hmm. in the space. But again, it was a gift for something like Tracy Emin's work, which you might almost miss because you would just get this green light and think, what's that? And then you look up and see the neon, which is above your head. And the idea is with that, that you almost feel you're under the sea. I don't know whether you've ever dived up from being under the sea and you get this wonderful aquamarine light mm, mm, mm. as the sun shines. You get that kind of feeling. That was the idea. I think that some of the, some people have really enjoyed seeing things like the vitrines where their postcards, <laughs> my family postcards, some of which are really funny, you know, which say some of them um, are my father and his brother corresponding way back, um, you know, many, many, many years ago in the 1930s, where he's saying, you might have heard of this small place called, you know, <laughs> Gibraltar or whatever, but uh -huh. it's kind of quite funny. And also some of the menus, which are, are really interesting. Amazing. You tell, know, the gala tell, menus. Tell me, tell me. You got some... Well, just some of the, um, what, the kind of food that you were served, you know, a la, they're always, you know, la, amazing, yeah. amazing. I, I can't think offhand, sorry, but there were some brilliant kind of combinations mm -hmm. and gala things of Chateaubriand and things like that. But but there's a kind of wonderful over excess, okay. you know. A la maison, a la fromage, <laughs> yes, creme fresh. Exactly. They wouldn't have heard of it, I can imagine. Exactly. So when are we talking about? When were those? those well, those were, those ones I put in from the family and uh, from the 60s. But then as mm. you move through, there's another vitrine, actually, which is some of Southampton's Sea City's own collection, which are beautiful, are posters mm. and also menus. And you see the, the beautiful painted menus and also the posters are wonderful, trying to lure people to go from Southampton on a, a big, voyage. Big, big business, wasn't it? The oh. coast, coastal. We've, we've lost, I think we've really lost, there's a disconnect now, you know, the <laughs> metropolitan, urban, London art world thing. I don't know as much about outside London, of course. But have we, as a country, kind of lost our relationship with that island mentality in the sea? Because I don't think of the sea surrounding us anymore. Internet, culture, everything, it's kind of continuous, it's streamlined, we're part of Western culture. Is there a sea separating us anymore? Gosh, actually Simon, you've thought of something so interesting. Look at the posters, there's a real feeling of you're looking back at past history, as you say, which is quite different. Mm. You're going to go on this voyage and the expectations are all there in the poster. Yes. But, of course, with the advent of things like the Channel Tunnel, 
you know, we are now linked and flying. flying. You don't travel anymore. In fact, you actually don't travel because you go from one shopping mall, the airport, to Mm -hmm. another shopping mall that's got a slightly different thing to a hotel that's got everything you need at home, or at least that's what a lot of people do. (laughs) Not us resonance listeners. Hey, guys. But, yeah, I mean, we're disconnected. There's this utter disconnect. There's also the thing of the voyage, um, the idea that you set out to see. Now, voyages have, have got quicker. The uh, Actually, they haven't. Sorry, I correct myself. They've got slower. The transatlantic route was a fast route. And there was a concept of the blue ribbon. And the idea of the blue ribbon, and in fact, you may remember from stories of the Titanic, one of mm. the things, they wanted to be really fast yeah, and get there and kind of beat records. So the whole idea is you built ships that were fast yeah, and yeah, effective yeah. Mm-hmm. and got you on a voyage. And you, you know, there were there were wonderful things, that the kennels on board and zoos were carried across. I mean, all these fantastic stories of what was actually on board ships mm. and people coming with their huge cabin trunks, their steamer trunks, and the idea was you could take as much as you wanted. There wasn't a luggage allowance, you know. So you would have your big steamer trunk and you'd dress up for with all dinner. With labels. We and all, all the steamer, labels. steamer trunks with labels. Of course. And posh, of course. Posh comes posh. from sea voyage. And that, you know what port posh out, comes from. Yes. Port out, starboard home. home. Exactly. Yeah, which were the best cabins to have. Exactly. So that kind of idea, <sighs> I guess, of the romance mm. of sea travel and the kind of dressing up and... The, the gala dinners and the parade of the baked Alaska and all these things that doesn't kind of happen anymore yeah. in that way. End, endless the fruit s- machines. The, the and, spectacle. And, yeah. The spectacle. I mean, I think that it's coming back. I think that um, shipping companies have realised that people also do want that romance. They do want to feel that they are travelling somewhere and it's all rather marvellous. Mm. And uh, But of course, a lot of the bigger ships can't get into small ports and you have to tender now that's a whole nother discussion because if you're tendering people off a large ship you've got to get 3,000 people on tenders off a ship somewhere it's going to take a bit of a while mm-hmm. so again there's all these different subtexts but I think when you to get back to what you said about this island yes isn't that interesting that we have perhaps lost this kind of thing of the seafaring nation and of course Really, when some of the interviews that uh, uh, we're going to listen to, um, then there was the whole idea of we were still building ships here. Mm-hmm. Very a lot of ships were being built in shipyards, which later were were shut down. And also in some of the archival material, I've got things like um, some articles about the beginnings of containerization mm. before people really realised what that was going to do it's to the shipping the world, industry. Changed the world, utterly changed yeah. the world. There's not just the shipping industry, mm. but the whole world. No, the whole world. So yeah. that whole thing of transporting things, of what you took to see, um, how what you travelled with, why you were travelling. Mm. Often you were travelling because you were literally going somewhere else to live. You know, which was a biggie. You know, you were going from England to live in New York or in America or Africa or wherever. So I, there was that I real went feeling. On, um, I went on a day trip to Boulogne from South End when I was a kid. <laughs> Did you feel you were going somewhere? It was exciting. You didn't even need your passport. I remember actually from the end of um, South End Pier. You didn't need your passport. I don't think so. I, I certainly didn't have one as a as, as a so young child. So where did you go? I mean, did yeah, you just Boulogne. get off and then? Yeah, you got hung around Boulogne and then came and back. And came back. Yeah. yeah so a was... bit like Humphrey Ocean's painting. <laughs> you went off. You got off. Yeah. You had a lovely day I out. I might have and then to recreate back. that at some point. The day trip to Boulogne. Well, it was it was what people did. Yeah. You 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 went on your day trip to, from Dover. You probably went from Dover, did you? No, no, no. South End. Oh, you went from South End. Sorry, South you can say that from yeah. South End. At the end of the pier. What? That's brilliant. Can you remember what it was, what it was called, where you went? The ship? Or the ferry? Was it a ferry? No, it was quite a big ship that came right into the end of the pier because South End is the longest pier in England. It's a mile long, so it's a mile out from the coast and you've got the little train down to the end. And it was all very, I think it was the first time I'd been abroad as a child. Day trip to France. Oh, lovely. And was the sea calm? I don't remember very much about But the you journey. weren't seasick? No, 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 not at all. But I, yeah, I remember some of those early cross-channel ferries. But there's a romance there. It's, it's funny how you talk about containers. 
and the need for speed, how certain practicalities actually shape an awful lot more of our cultural reference point. Just like clippers, they were clipper ships and things. That was when tea had to be got at freshness and really mm. fast. And then when the Indian, they started growing tea in India, it wasn't necessary anymore, etc, etc. Et it was all very complicated. But things change and it's they affect do. us quite deeply. They do change and and yet you know, we have huge contemporary examples, only as you say, this week um, a tragedy, or last week actually a tragedy. Um, the aeroplane might never be found. They're talking, it, they're talking now, we might not find it. But it I might think take what years. was interesting about that mm. was for many people, do they really think about how deep certain oceans are? When you suddenly hear how many miles down mm. in the ocean that is, and the compression, what it does to everything, it yeah, just yeah, yeah. just compresses it. Mm -hmm. um, so, literally looking for the needle in a haystack. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I had a horrible uh, I thought of um, when that Air France plane lost overseas about four years ago mm. on the market, mm. Portobello Market, I found a whole box of, air, uh, not airfix, but ones from um, estate, not estate agents, windows, the aeroplanes, but little ones. And I remember bringing them home and a couple of us had a bath and threw all the aeroplanes in there and we were doing Air France in the bath <laughs> under an aeroplane wing in the flat there. It was just a thought. It was just a thing. I've got the photographs. But it was I a reenactment. But I think that... They found Air France quite quickly. Yes, they did. Um, but what made me think that was you talk about the pressure compressing it. I'm thinking there'll be a tiny little model plane under there now. Yes. That's what they're looking for. It's almost it, an it, airfix. It, 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 it's very scary. But also things like when you hit unidentified objects. Now, often they are not unidentified objects. What they are is things that have moved on the ocean bed mm. or you've got too near them. You know, the cut rent is a bit stronger than you anticipated. None of these things should happen now. And in fact, you know, in sea law, we've learned a lot since the Titanic of, you know, how to launch lifeboats, how to have good measures but then it's not, it's not that long ago. Do you remember the Herald of Free Enterprise? The, I do. The Actually, Channel I was Ferry. much, much thinking of that Cause, in cause this I, terrible yeah, disaster. I remember seeing that from the French coast because it was only about a mile off the coast. I, was, I went over there for something and the hotel was quite near it and it was a ferry that you and I would easily... I probably travelled on that ferry because that's sort of thing we used to do. And seeing this giant ship so prone mm. and so dead and stuck in the water like mm. that, it was... Mm. And a lot of people lost their lives, didn't they? They did, and it was it was terrible. I remember it extremely vividly. I was incredibly upset, as I was by the recent disaster, um, because A, it was avoidable, in a sense. They left the door open, um, they and, left and the, the wave back came the, over. Yeah, yeah, they the left front. the back of the... The, the, the ship where they loaded, no, yeah. as they loaded, um, where they load the cars on, they didn't shut it quickly enough. Wave came and it just, it just tipped the ship. Yeah, tipped the ship. Tipped the ship. Do you know the announcement um, they made as it was going down? No, it was one of those secret announcements. They have, you know, they have coded announcements in public places, yes. and they made, um, they asked for the ship's carpenter to go to the bridge, and that's a code for we're sinking. Oh my goodness, I haven't heard that one. I mm -hmm. know some of the codes, but I mean, I think that. Just awful, but um, I do think though there is still there's all these things, aren't there, with with the sea, the mystery of it, the beauty of it, the the magic of it, and you know it will lure us and it will. And when I was installing the show, in fact, in Southampton, um, it, we had had the most terrible ghastly storms and flooding. So I was in, in installing it in January because it opened in February, in fact, February the 8th. And, and at that point, the weather was just so ghastly and the seas were pitching and the, every television programme was showing kind of waves destroying harbour walls. And here I was, you know, installing something about the sea, but not in that way because no, this was not... Uh, but this was not really about the power of the waves. It was about the power of people's imagination, really, exactly and the how word, they yeah. dealt with their thoughts of the sea. The sea's always uh, very, very, uh, uh, as being a very 
deep part of our psyche, our imagination always has. The sea monsters that used to live on the maps. The sea monsters, yes, absolutely. And actually, how marvellous you brought that up, because one of the things of Simon Patterson's work is not just Cousteau, he also puts onto the maps Homer's voyages, of course, a mythical voyage. Mm. Um, so we've got where Homer went. Uh, and, and, you know, so we were tracing his journey and all the kind of events in his life. So, How does that compare to Crowhurst's <laughs> mythical journey? <aren't> <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Mm. I mean, Crowhurst, I, I think, endlessly engaging, actually. Um, Donald Crowhurst's voyage is an endlessly engaging story about a man um, totally at sea, literally. Mm, in every way possible. In every way possible. And also one thing that Tassida mentioned when which is on her interview with me is actually about the kind of extraordinary minutes of the race kept in then the little museum in Tigmouth when she first went there. And what what she found extraordinary was they had even documented, you know, the caravan owner who had given some money towards sponsoring the race, but also extraordinary things of her finding and unscrewing and looking under the ship when she found it and founding his catamaran, when she, his, his boat, mm. when she found it, and finding these pain's flares. So these flares, which hadn't been used, of course, which are distress flares. Lovely. And then travelling with them back on a plane and not thinking, you know. Uh, mm. In a hand luggage. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll be. Yeah, I must um, try that you, one. You know, well, uh, it was a while ago. She put, she wouldn't be able to do it now, but she said it didn't even kind of cross her mind, really. She was just so thrilled to find these extraordinary flares with all their... Graphic design. Else, she was lost in the story. Yeah, she was lost the reality, in the story, as, not as the reality. As was lost at sea. As he was lost at sea. Um, so, I, yeah, so I guess, but also, if anything, what you see is how, as well, how time does pass and how we, we approach, as you say, the posters, the menu covers are so different and the little things like the ashtrays, you know, the things that you were given um, as souvenirs to, if you were a valued passenger, you were given a, a souvenir of an ashtray or a little teapot or a set of playing cards or something like that and we've got some of those examples and they're one, rather one, yeah. wonderful to see one and of the sailor's hooks or <laughs> no sailor's hooks sadly. no sailor's hooks sadly. tell you what look we're we're, we're ticking along time-wise now we're going to be able to fit in we've done we've done actually i'm going to have to do something called editing this oh no we'll i realize we've long. done an hour yeah no 49 minutes which is okay but um do you want to round it off at all, or are we just fine just to drift in, off into it? I mean, Drifting it's doing, off would be rather appropriate, <laughs> wouldn't I think. it? It would I be think, nice. I think we just drift off on yeah, something. Drift into we it. just drift, drift into off on Here we go, drifting. out to sea. Here yeah. we go. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm going to have that radio three minutes. But you know, even ending with... And of course, the biggest shock came when I joined the Queen Mary in 1936. Having not at that time sailed on any ship of more than, actually can't see, the ship of more than 14,000 tons, and uh, with only one funnel, to to come down to Southampton, or down to the docks, and to see this enormous ship, you know, with her, she stood 60 feet from the waterline uh, to, the, to the bow, and of course she was uh, more than a quarter of a mile long, and she stood the height of a 20-story block of flats, and an enormous thing, and she just towered over it. And I stood on the dockside after I got out of the taxi before carrying my bags to the gangway, and I looked up at this and I said, my goodness, Jeffrey, how do you ever learn to drive anything quite as big as this, you know? You have been listening to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, Simon Tishko, and my special guest this week, Jean Wainwright, who we hope to hear much more of in the future. Um, all the details of Jean's exhibition and her other work will be available on my website as ever, www.theculture.net. Have a look there, where you can also find details of an extremely exciting project coming up 
towards the end of May with Resonance collaborating with the Science Museum, collaborating with Sonic Artist and Resonance broadcaster Alex Kowalski, where we are going to be broadcasting live from the Science Museum on the world's most magnificent, most fantastic exponential horn, one of the world's biggest and most superb loudspeakers ever, ever made. This is a recreation of the 1930s... Um, original which was the star of the science museum at that time it is so super anoraki and super resonance that i'm sure you're all going to be want to be there so check out the links on theculture.net and um start making some plans to come down and visit in the meantime thanks for tuning in come back same time same place in fact just stay locked resonance 104 fm 104.4 fm on your london dial forever because it's great this is me this is simon tishko signing out for another week thanks for listening see you same time same place same resonance bye for now this program was brought to you by resonance 104.4 fm visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24 7 broadcasts resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at ResonanceFM.com.